Welcome, everybody, to Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. You may notice we have the friend today, but not the Kyle. Um, (laughs) Kyle is home in New York getting ready for the holidays, but we are very lucky to have a wonderful guest here, Maximilian Alvarez. Guys probably know him already, one of our stalwart. You were routinely always everybody's favorite guest on Rising. (laughs) Um, So glad to get to catch up with Max. He is editor-in-chief at The Real News, host of Working People podcast, and author of a forthcoming book that I've just been reading called The Work of Living. And it is always wonderful to see you, my friend. Thank you, Crystal. It's great to be here. Um, I really wanted to talk to you first and foremost, then we're going to get into your book a bit, about all of the many labor struggles that are going on out there because you are an activist and a believer. You're also a journalist covering these stories over at The Real News. So let's start with kind of the high-level picture. What do you think is going out there on out there uh, among America's workers? Because you see not only a wave of strikes, which in some ways is kind of a continuation of the teacher strikes. You see uh, mass resignations, even among white-collar workers. You see workers who aren't unionized just straight up walking out of their workplaces en masse. You see all these signs of resistance. You see Starbucks workers in Buffalo for the first time, a unionized shop in the U.S., which is incredible and, you know, against all the odds. So what do you think is going on out there? Yeah, it's been it's been a very interesting year. Um, and I think, like, from the outset, there is something unremarkable about it in that, you know, if you look at U.S. history, in the kind of immediate period after war and pandemics, like, you usually do see an uptick in labor militancy. Like, mm. this was the case a century ago, around 1919, Um you know, you had the Spanish flu, but you also had workers who had made a lot of sacrifices for the war effort, um, the ones who didn't go off to war, that was. Um, and there's an interesting history there that we don't have to get into. Uh, it's like my dissertation side of my brain. But, um, you know, there was sort of a deal that organized labor such that it was at that point in time made with the government to essentially maintain a status quo of labor peace during the wartime effort, you know, it was seen as unpatriotic to go on strike and, um, you know, kind of do anything to disrupt that war effort. But then uh, after the war was won um, and after the Spanish flu had kind of subsided, workers who had tightened their belts, who had really kind of done their part for the war effort, um, wanted restitution, right? They, they, they were like, okay, we, we sacrificed, we did our part, um, you know, we're, we're, pay us back what we're owed, right? Um, but you also saw this, you know, like in the aftermath of World War II, um, actually probably the greatest wave of strikes in the United States. I think at one point in the 1940s, one in 10 American workers had gone on strike. It's amazing. It was, yeah, it was really nuts. So we got a long way to go to get back to that. Um, but I think that, you know, in that sort of broad historical uh, view, what we are seeing is part of that trend where working people over the past two years have made a lot of sacrifices um, to keep society afloat, right? I mean, I think we'll we'll get into this in a second, um, but I I do think that it's uh, part of what has motivated so many folks. It's certainly what a lot of workers have told me, uh, you know, in conversation off air or for the real news or working people. A lot of them will tell me that, 
you know, even just the designation, the creation of this category of essential worker, right? Frontline worker, mm. right? Um, I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic from the Working People Twitter account, I had like our most viral tweet to date where I said something like, man, all of that unskilled labor became essential real fast, mm. right? And you saw just like, not like Twitter is a great diagnostic or anything, but it's just the that sort of message was really resonating and I was hearing it in a lot of different workplaces where people for so long who had been told over and over again that they were expendable, uh, that they weren't special, that they were replaceable, that they were unskilled, were suddenly deemed essential and suddenly the spotlight was on workers and we realized perhaps more than we ever have in this country that it is us who keep the gears of commerce and society turning. When the pandemic hit, the rich all went to their mansions, right? You know, the the the, the wealthy, the elite, the powerful, they were they were hunkered down mm -hmm. in their little bunkers. It was working people who went out and sacrificed and they kept um, society from completely collapsing. They kept people um, caring for one another, right? Frontline healthcare workers kept, um, you know, they really have borne the worst of, of the past two years, but... The point I'm getting at is that it became clearer than ever before just how essential our labor is. Um, and so when you kind of realize that your place in that um, economy and at the same time, though, you're realizing that you live in a system that values your labor but not your life, um, that's the kind of juxtaposition that a lot of workers have have been in. They've been celebrated as heroes. They got hero pay for like two weeks and then they got it taken away. <laughs> right. Um, at the same time, though, that <clears throat> it was very clear um, from the kind of ghoulish chorus in uh, the mainstream media telling people to like sacrifice themselves for the economy, right? As I said, like it became very clear that this is a system that values our labor but not our lives. And so I think those two things together over the course of the past two years have made workers feel more emboldened to, you know, stand up for themselves. Um, they have more bargaining power um, because, again, they realize how essential their work is. But also they are very pissed off that, um, you know, after confronting this situation of mass death, after having to confront our own mortality to realize the callousness with which the business class, the owning class, the ruling class, like the disdain that they actually have for us, how little care they have for our lives um, and our families, you know, that has really, I think, fueled this sort of increasing worker militancy. Um, and that is translated to these sort of high stakes strikes that we've been seeing, the great resignation that we've been seeing. Um, so it's both, <clears throat> again, I think a continuation of that historical trend. There's also something unique about it in that I think that this also became the rupture point for a lot of uh, pressures that have been building up over decades where workers have been more productive than ever. American workers are among the, the most, the people who work the most in the world. Um, and yet cost of living has gone up. Wages for most people have been stagnant for decades mm -hmm. and more and more of the wealth has been going to the top and not to working people. So I think like all of that really came to a head this year. One of the things that you just said that's really interesting is, um, and tell me if I'm mischaracterizing this, but the language and rhetoric, as empty as it ultimately ended up being, 
about essential workers Mm. and the reality that was just obvious for people to see that the entire country would have fallen apart without people who were willing to keep the gears turning, um, that it actually mattered and that it potentially changed people's own self-conception of the work that they were doing. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is. Um, You know, it's 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 always hard to say. Right. Because um, one caveat that I would give um, to to anyone listening or watching, right, is that one of the really special things about this past year is that you've seen um, labor struggle in a lot of different sectors, right? I mean, like, uh, most of it has taken place in the private sector, but within that, you've seen strikes happening in higher education, Mm -hmm. you've seen it happening in fast food, Mm -hmm. you've seen it happening in manufacturing, right? So, like, that's quite significant, Um, And I would say that um, there are quite a number of workers who are well aware of how valuable they are. So, like, you take as an example um, the Kellogg strike that just ended, right? So, 1,400 Kellogg's workers at plants in Battle Creek, Michigan, Omaha, Nebraska, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Memphis, Tennessee had been on strike since October 5th. Um, and they just ratified their new contract uh, this week. Shout out to Kellogg's, um, Kellogg's workers, that is. Um, but <laughs> you talk to to those workers, you know, folks like Dan Osborne, who's someone I talk to quite a bit on The Real News and Working People. He's worked at the Omaha plant for 18 years. Um, he is now the, the serving as the union president of the BCTGM Local 50G that, down there in Omaha. Um, when Kellogg's threatened to replace all of these striking workers. Um, folks like Dan and the other people on the picket line with him, they said, good luck, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, like, good luck. Like, So they weren't, it, this didn't terrify them. They thought, this is not going to be as easy as you think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. I mean, I think um, anyone who hasn't been in that position um, should appreciate, like, how scary that threat is um but i think that you really saw this this um confidence in the value of the work that that these workers do and it translates to you know what they were out on the line for in the first place right they said like look i've like dan was saying um recently to me he's like look i've been in this plant for 18 years, and I'm still learning new things about these machines. These machines are specialized machines, right? They all have different temperaments, right? And you've got to have a very intimate knowledge of how they work and how to fix them in order to keep things moving. Um, so you do develop a very sort of specialized uh, you know, position in that production line. Um, and if corporate is thinking that they can just pick someone up off the street and do that, or get some white collar pencil pusher in in the front office to do it. You're gonna end you up did at a situ- John Deere. Yeah, you're gonna have to see what you did at John Deere, where like the very first day on the strike, there were ambulances and fire trucks kind of going into Not that to we these wish plants. Anyone to get hurt? We don't Quite want anyone to get hurt. Right, exactly. But it's just like, you know, there there we can get into this in a second because um, you already kind of mentioned it, right? Like thinking about the strikes that have been happening this year. And the great resignation, i.e. record numbers of American workers voluntarily quitting their jobs. I think the highest number was in September, um, which, you know, reached over, what, four, it was like 4.4 million, um, which was the largest number since the Bureau of Labor Statistics started tracking those numbers. So you have these two phenomena that are part, I think, of the same 
general swell of labor uh, unrest and increasing labor militancy, but they are taking very different forms. If you have unionized shops, um, you actually have more power as a collective workforce to stand your ground and to say, we're not going to just leave and find other jobs. We as a collective are going to stop production, stay here, demand that you improve working conditions and pay and so on and so forth. That's what workers at places like Kellogg's were able to do. But the fact remains that union density in this country is at historic lows, so most workers don't have that option. What what were they able to win in this in this contract? I haven't had a chance to dig into the details. So um, con- the details are still kind of coming out. Um, right now we have kind of the main bullet points that the union's been putting out, corporate comes out. This is kind of how the dance is done. Um, it's a mixed bag. Um, workers and Kellogg's went on strike. Um, the, the tip of the spear was getting rid of the two-tier system, mm-hmm. something that you've talked about a lot, which is very important because the fact that like this has entered the public lexicon in the span of a few months, it's such an important part of this labor story, and yet so many people hadn't really heard about it uh, in these terms until recently. That's why the work that, that you do is so important. Um, more and more people started to realize like why this was a problem and how, in fact, it is trickling out into all sorts of sectors of the economy. Two-tier, again, we'll get to this in a second, two-tier is everywhere. It is a form of class war. It is um, rideshare driving compared to taxi driving. Mm. It is adjuncts um, in higher education compared to tenured professors. It is contractors compared to full-time employees, right? Two-tier is a generalized form of class war that has seeped into basically every type of industry. And so workers at Kellogg's, just like workers at John Deere, workers at Nabisco and, and, and all over the place, said we need to stop this because this is one of the primary mechanisms through which we create what Bernie Sanders famously called this race to the bottom. So workers, I guess for, for listeners, two-tier basically means the system whereby newer workers are being hired um, and being paid, you know, near half of what long-term first-tier union workers are getting paid. The promise is that if they put in their time, which could be two, three, four, five, six years, they can eventually move into that first tier, get paid more, get more retirement and healthcare benefits, so on and so forth. But essentially what it actually does is it creates this ever-expanding pool of people on the same shop floor doing the same job for basically half the the pay, right? And so that creates a lot of resentment on That's the shop divide floor. divide and conquer strategy. Textbook divide and conquer. Um, that's exactly what it is. Um, and so you, this was something really special in the Kellogg strike and a lot of the other strikes that we've seen where, you know, older workers or, or workers who have been at these plants for a long time, like Dan Osborne, um, weren't really getting kind of anything new in the contract or they weren't fighting for anything new. They were fighting for the people next to them. That They were really showing the country what solidarity looks like, and they said as much. They said over and over again, we are fighting for the future. Trevor Biddleman at, um, Battle, at the Battle Creek plant said as much as well. He said, we are fighting to stop this kind of race to the bottom, to lift the floor for all workers so that people don't get trapped in this two-tier, because if we let this cycle continue— it's essentially going to mean that that first tier gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we all retire out, leave jobs, and everyone's in that kind of crappy second tier. Anyway, sorry, the reason I go into that in detail is that 
the new contract does not fully get rid of two-tier, which is frustrating. It did, however, um, the union did get Kellogg's to make amendments to its system so that there's no permanent two-tier. Basically, people in that bottom tier have a pathway to getting into that first tier. Um, it's not airtight. There's still ways that people can get trapped in that mm. sort of cycle. But they also did um, get cost of living adjustments um, back into the the um, contract language. They did make a lot of gains. And I think that you're not going to get everything that we need in one contract um, fight. But I think it does really set the stage for a lot of other fights that we're going to see in 2022. And it makes some, it kind of keeps the BCTGM, it stops them from this kind of continuous backslide. They actually mm. dug their heels in. They they went to the mat on these issues. And I think in the next contract fight at Kellogg's, we're going to see a little more um, pep in their step. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you are able to win, yeah, that gives you confidence and you flexed your muscle. They threw everything at them that they could, including the threat of we're going to permanently replace you. Which is unconscionable that that's even legal to do. And that's part of the other landscape is that if you're in a union, you have obviously way more power to be able to stand together, fight together and win these concessions. But because our laws are so tilted in favor of corporations, they still have a lot of tools in their arsenal. It's still not a fair fight. No, no, it it is not fair (laughs) at all. Um, And I think that um, that's another encouraging thing. Um, I guess if I could put a find the silver lining here is that um, another side of this story that has been very encouraging to me, and I, I imagine you as well, since our role in this struggle is on the kind of media side and trying to essentially connect people to these struggles, to the voices on the front lines, to do the work that mainstream media will not, um, and to let people know what's going on, um, why it's important, why they should care, why they should invest in these struggles, starting from Amazon unionizing or, or trying to unionize Workers at Amazon trying to unionize at Bessemer, Alabama, which I think really kicked off this year of labor strife, um, to now, right? The more that people learned about this stuff, the more that they started to see in painful detail how rigged the system is. Amazon is a perfect example, right? We all got very invested in that struggle. Um, It was important. It is important um, for a number of reasons that we talked about, um, you know, back at the Hill that we talked about here. Um, You know, for the workers, first and foremost, you know, they desperately need more of a say in their workplace. They need better protections because Amazon is not going to do it. And that point was made painfully clear this week. The great Kim Kelly went back to Bessemer for more perfect union and reported a harrowing story of two workers at that Bessemer facility who died uh, in that facility within the span of 24 hours of each other. Um, One worker went to HR the day that he passed away um, saying he didn't feel well. He wanted to go home and they said, oh, you don't have enough unpaid time off. You got to go back. And then he had a stroke and died alone on the floor in this horrible facility. That is why people need a goddamn union. Sorry, it's it's a very emotional thing. But like, again, like you look at that struggle in Bessemer as a sort of microcosm of how rigged the system has become. 
um, Amazon threw everything in the kitchen sink at this unionization effort to thwart it, and they were successful, um, even to the extent of breaking the law, uh, installing a federal post um, mail mailbox on, in front of its main entrance on its property. It also had local police on its property circling 24-7. So it was use, it's using. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, I saw it. I mean, like the the cop car followed me around when I was driving in oh the, when I was trying to find the exit. I know they changed the stoplight timing so they that organizers couldn't line. talk to workers as they were leaving the plant or coming to the plant. Right. So so all these things that Amazon could do, um, both like things that it did that are perfectly legal, right? Um, like the captive audience meetings that it would hold, like all the sort of union-busting crap that workers were subjected to on a day-to-day basis. That's all perfectly legal. Um, but it also did illegal things, and the National Labor Relations Board deemed Amazon to have um, unfairly interfered with this union election. And so the retail wholesale and department store union down there um, has been granted another shot at a union election. We don't know what that's going to look like. But the point being that Amazon kind of got what it wanted. It thwarted that effort. Um, even if it broke the law, it's going to face minimal penalties for that because labor law is so stacked in favor of the bosses that all workers, all companies basically get as a slap on the wrist yeah. for, for interfering in what should be a sanctified democratic process um, for organizing in their workplaces. But, um, you know, so you think about just the disparity there between Amazon interfering in what should be uh, and is supposed to be a legally protected form of worker organizing and democratic voting the penalties for interfering with that are minimal. However, workers are subjected to like random searches in case they steal something off mm-hmm. the the line. Like if they get caught, like taking one thing home, you know the hammer's going to come down on them. Um, so so the the law really is working in favor of one side over another. This is to say nothing of how uh, companies like Warrior Met Coal, that is also in Alabama. And Kellogg's have weaponized the courts, business-friendly courts, to use injunctions to essentially limit workers' uh, right to picket. Um, I did an interview on The Real News with someone from uh, the Warrior Met Coal Strike, Larry Spencer, and Dan Osborne over there in Kellogg's. And they have both faced similar injunctions from courts that have basically said that you can't be near an entrance, you can't curse, you can't do anything. At the same time that scabs driving into Warrior Met Coal are hitting workers, picketing workers with their car. And there's no consequences. And there's no consequences. I mean, <laughs> that it just seems like in violation of basic First Amendment protection, protections mm-hmm. that they can is- issue an injunction saying, nope, you can't express yourself here. We're going to limit your ability, dramatically limit your ability to even like make people aware of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is, you know, another... I think really important facet to all of this because you know that. By the that, way, I don't hear any of the cancel culture people on the right too concerned about this particular. That's, what, that's where I'm First getting. <laughs> I mean, censorship. This, this, this is like one of the things that you know I've been very grateful to folks like Kim Kelly, folks um, like the Valley Labor Report, a great labor radio show down there in Alabama, have been hammering mm. uh, elected officials and right wing media and others on this. They say, look, every four years. You guys go around and you you take pictures with coal miners and you you use them as these sort of puppets and props um, for your political agenda. And you say, like, we are all for the humble coal miner. 
Well, here are 1,100 in Alab- deep red Alabama, many of whom are conservative Trump voters. Yep. Um, where are you? Right? They need you. I, like, you know, we can set our politics aside. They need you, and you are nowhere to be found. Um, and then you add on to it what you just said, that um, not only is are these coal miners who are being screwed over by a company that promised that it would pay them back in the past contract negotiation if they could turn things around, make the mine profitable again, which workers did, and they did that through sweat blood and tears and sacrifice. The thing that they're all, all these coal miners are saying is that we work, you know, just ungodly hours. We barely ever get to see our families to say nothing of how dangerous coal mining itself already is. But, you know, if we, if our spouse is in the hospital and we're like nearly a mile underground and we want to leave, that may be a strike and that may lead to us getting a strike on our record. It may lead us to get fired. So all these sacrifices that workers have made to make that mine up until the pandemic more productive than it had ever been and to make investors and stakeholders in that mine like BlackRock in New York, which according to the the United Mine Workers America is Warrior Met Coal's largest um, financial stakeholder, they're raking it in, they're raking money in off the back of those workers and their sacrifices. And so then when the new contract came up, Warrior Met wanted to take more. It wanted to take as much as it could for itself. It wanted to make workers sacrifice even more. So this is a very clear-cut case of working people being screwed by nefarious profit-seeking forces that are not honoring the commitments that they have made to their workers. You know, even my former conservative self would be able to get behind that. Well, if you look at, I mean, this is another thing I wanted to ask you about because they've been polling, a couple polls have come out on, you know, do people support the John Deere strikers? Do people support the Kellogg strikers? And there's mass public support for these workers, which I've found to be, you know, extraordinarily encouraging. What do you make of that? And do you think, obviously, corporate media barely covers any of this, but a little bit has seeped in, a little bit about Amazon. Yeah. Little bit about John Deere, little bit about Kellogg's because these are such, you know, iconic American brands. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like people are starting to get a little bit of a re-education in what labor is all about. Because that's one of the challenges of covering it, is we've it's so much of the the language and just the understanding of what it is and what the process is and what the odds are, so much of that has fallen out of our public discourse. It has. We have we have a long way to go. Um, and <laughs> we have a very low labor IQ nationally. We have a very low labor IQ. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and that is, yeah, dear dear listeners and viewers, like that is by design. Um, you know that that is that is something that um, did not happen overnight. You know, it's we we can talk all day about kind of the the importance that local media used to serve as a sort of check on. Um, power in communities where local bosses were taking advantage of workers, you know, stuff that may not have, stories that may not have made it into national news, local news really served an important function there. So when, as local news has continued to die, you know, a slow, painful death, that has created this sort of vacuum of awareness that essentially gives, you know, small tyrants in different cities and counties and states like kind of carte blanche to do whatever the hell they want um, without the eye of the public really know, like seeing what they're doing. 
Um, on top of that, you know, there are a lot of other sort of changes in the kind of mainstream media makeup, some of which we've talked about together on, on my own podcast, right, about this kind of class dimension of the mainstream media. Mm. Um, but anyway, that, there's a lot of, I think, interesting facets there if you look at the media side of why we have covered labor so little over the past decades and why, f for the most part, even when we did talk about labor struggles, especially before the Great Recession, they were they tended to be covered in a very unsympathetic light. Yeah, um, very true. And um, this this is something that I think about a lot. This this is, I promise, an answer to your question because, you know, I think about, again, growing up conservative in Orange County, kind of the heart of the Reagan revolution in a lot of ways. It was a very anti-labor culture that I grew up in. Um, and I grew up listening to right-wing talk radio in the car, sitting on the freeway with my dad and my mom so wow. often. And, you know, it was just that constant ideological air conditioning that, you know, really made sense to me at the time because I didn't really know any better. But the thing that I always recall is that whenever there was a strike – or, a con or it looked like there may be a strike, whether it was teachers, hospitality workers, or what have you, or sports, you know, MLB's famous strike, you know, in the 90s, right? It was all presented to me as um, I was addressed as the consumer who was being inconvenienced mm -hmm. by these things, mm -hmm. right? Um, or I was being— You're being denied your baseball game, or yep. you're being denied your whatever good or service you might want because workers are out. Yeah. That's 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 what really sticks out to me from local news and talk and right wing talk radio um, was that there was a presumption that whoever was listening to this was first and foremost thinking of themselves as the the consumer or as the um, uh, what's the word you know just just the person who was um yeah really being inconvenienced by this even if it was like teachers right it's like i pay my taxes pay your salary kind of thing right and and how dare you you know demand more um and, and when you should want to teach the kids right out of love for the mission right you know like you're being greedy yada 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 so that was always the way that it was pitched to us and i think that the 90s especially and even uh, the early 2000s was a time in this country when more people um, could see themselves first and foremost as consumers um, because the American dream as a possibility had not yet e completely evaporated, right? There still was this sort of belief that um, upward mobility was possible. There was a belief that the kind of growth that we were seeing after the Cold War ended um, – for a brief time, it felt like, you know, America had won, capitalism had won, that the pie was big enough for everyone to get a piece, um, that a pathway to a comfortable middle class or upper middle class existence, or even the promises that Reagan and his generation made. Um, I always remember because we, we had bumper stickers with this stuff on. My, my parents would get us gifts from rightwingstuff.com. Wow, you guys were all in. <laughs> I knew you had like a conservative background, but yeah. I didn't know you were like Rush Limbaugh nope. and like conservative merch for your birthday. Oh, yeah. You were all the way there. And, uh, and, there, <laughs> and like it's funny because, uh, you know, everyone this year was learning about Larry Elder 
because he of his uh, stake right. in the California governor's race. And I was like, I grew up on that. Guy. Oh, you've, you've been known Larry Elder. I've been known Larry Elder. <laughs> and I was like, listen, as the editor-in-chief of a nonprofit news network, I can't tell anyone how to vote. But I'm like, look before you buy, right? I mean, just just get to know Larry Elder. Um because the guy's very like Rush Limbaugh, he's very good at what he does. But if you look actually at his ideology, it, it's a, uh, it's very, it's very, uh, it's not great. Um, but anyway, <laughs> point being that um, clearly people agreed with you. Yeah, thank goodness. Yes. Yes, I think we dodged a bullet there. But um, yeah, the point being is that um, I remember these slogans from Reagan, Bush Senior, and others that yeah, we did have on buttons and and bumper stickers and stuff like that. Um, one of which was this uh, quote from Reagan. I may butcher it, but it was something to the extent of, um, I believe in an America where people can get rich and stay rich, right? That mm. was, the, again, the kind of dream that was part of this culture in the 80s and 90s where Americans really thrust themselves into celebrating um, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, celebrating mm. like the whole greed is good ideology, right? Well, and this is when Donald Trump's became becoming super famous. Too. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there was this kind of, I don't know, orgiastic celebration of wealth again, that, that coincided with this historical period with the cold war ending with the dot-com boom and so on and so forth, where it did feel like, it was okay to shamelessly love that sort of exorbitant culture because you still felt like you could be part of it, right? Or if you couldn't get there, you you still had options to enjoy it. You could go to Vegas, right? You could you could still, as a consumer, participate in that sort of lavish um, culture and that sort of belief that upward mobility um, was was attainable. That came crashing down in the recession. And I think that since then, um, a lot of people have realized that they are not in that position. Um, more and more people identify less as they did in the 90s and early 2000s as consumers. More people identify with other workers who are being screwed over by a system that is concentrating all that wealth and power at the top because you don't hear that Reagan promise anymore. You don't hear mm. we can get rich and stay rich. Not even the Republicans say that anymore. It's just like now our wealthy overlords like Elon Musk, we're putting all our faith in them, but we're we don't believe that we can actually be them anymore. Mm, that's interesting. I think also at that point, it wasn't clear everything you lose by being boiled down to being just a consumer, right? And that mentality of flattening everybody from community member, father, brother, sister, you know, church member, whatever you are, down to just consumer, that's how you end up with a behemoth like Amazon mm -hmm. feeling like they can treat their workers like total shit to the point of, you know, two people dying in one day and then telling the workforce, just keep going. I mean, people weren't even allowed to grieve. Six workers died in that same warehouse in, you know, the course of this year, as, as Kim brought to us. And all of this is not only viewed as more or less okay by the system, but it's actually viewed as, well, they're delivering for consumers. Mm -hmm. They're making sure you can get your package in a day. They're making sure that the prices can be as low as possible. Who cares if that means, you know, stripping out our industrial base and sending all these jobs overseas and destroying the meaning in people's lives and entire communities because we're serving your interest as consumer? Yeah. And I think, um, 
mean, I do think a lot of people are are having buyer's remorse, right? Because um, one question that I get asked a lot from people is, um, you know, they'll tell me it's like, you know, I don't want this anymore. Like, uh, but I feel like uh, Amazon has gobbled up so much that um, it's untenable for me to make purchases elsewhere, right? Or, or it feels like they're too embedded in my life um, to actually like extract myself from that. And I think that that's, um, again, why we can't necessarily divorce um, the current support for the labor movement and the sort of, um, you know, the, the labor movement itself getting back up on its feet. It's, as we said, still has a long way to go. Um, but what we are seeing as a continuation of the kind of public sector teacher strikes um, that happened before the pandemic is, you know, more and more people realizing that that it is a race to the bottom, right? Yeah. And that, in fact, the, like, there is no bottom, right? It really is just pushing us as far down as we, as, you know, the the powers that be will will want to push us down um but i think that more and more people are starting to realize that um that the bargain that they thought they were making was that if i go with my consumer instincts if i vote with my dollars as we were always told right that the market dynamics will operate such that whatever product comes out of it will be the best version, mm. right? That's that's the kind of ideology of capitalism. When what we're seeing is that, no, actually what is happening is these sort of profit-seeking entities are not competing with one another to make the best product that is basically voted on by consumers with their dollars. What they're doing, like Amazon, is gobbling up more and more of the market, controlling that market, limiting competition, and consumers essentially have to take whatever they is given to them and they have no control over it. This is how, you know, and we get little signs of that, right? And we get little signs whenever Apple or Android takes the the headphone jack out of our phone. It's like, right. I didn't want that. Right. right? Like who said that was better for me? Right. You know, why like, don't I have, I have 30 pairs of headphones that I, I have no use for? I have 30 pairs of headphones. <laughs> I got a pile of phones that like you look at your phone, you're like, this, this is in some way like one of the most sophisticated things that human beings have ever created, why does it break down after a year? Does mm. it have to be that way? Right. No, it doesn't. But when you are like kind of in a profit-seeking um, system that needs to figure out ways to constantly grow, that's what you end up with, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, let me ask you, did you see recently uh, Sherrod Brown and Marco Rubio teamed up on a letter to Labor Secretary Marty Walsh asking for an investigation of Amazon's labor conditions. And um, I know you know, but just for people who don't, Marco Rubio, when it came to the Bessemer union fight, he technically came out in support of the workers unionizing. But the op-ed he wrote about it was like really pretty cringe. It was basically like, in general, <laughs> I don't like unions. Mm. I'm paraphrasing. This isn't exactly what he said, obviously. But in general, this is bad. But Amazon's got a woke HR department. And so in this one limited instance, I'm on the side of the workers. 
The letter didn't have that same type of cringe. It actually listed out things that you've covered at The Real News, things we've covered at breaking points, real issues, whether it was, you know, OSHA investigation for their failure to protect workers during the tornado, um, firing Christian Smalls and other workers in retaliation, all of these sorts of things listed out. What do you make of that? Because also there was that. And then there was also uh, Bernie put out a phenomenal video about the Kellogg's workers that was retweeted by a couple of sort of like Trumpy MAGA candidates. Is there something real there? Or are you very skeptical of that direction, um, which is extraordinarily limited, but that seems to be being flirted with with a few people in the Republican Party? I think there could be something there. I think um, it's kind of a smushy answer to the question, but like I guess I, I am intrigued but need to see more because right now it feels like it's very low stakes for them. Yes. Um, and so the real test will be... It's like, okay, if this is happening in your state, right, if this is happening with uh, a big employer in your state, right, or, you know, like there are, again, like with union density being so low in this country, um, just hovering above 10% nationally and and kind of abysmal rates um, in the private sector, right, you can vocalize support for organized labor with organized labor essentially still representing a very small segment of the American workforce. Um, so I do think that it's smart for uh, politicians to at least nominally support this. And I do think it does help uh, in some regard. Cause like for me, I guess the way that I look at it is, you know, I've, I've said many times, like, you know, I, I am, First and foremost, uh, a, I'm dedicated to the working class, right? And I want to see working people thrive and, and I want to see people get a better deal than they've been given and to stop being taken advantage of and exploited and so on and so forth. That's what guides my politics. So if, you know, a Republican senator, you know, who I disagree with on everything else actually has it right on, you know, workers being screwed over and taken advantage of by a major powerful corporation, come on in, right? Yeah. You know, that's great. You know, like we, right. we need that vocal support, which is important. Again, you think about the longer trajectory that we were just talking about, the very fact of like a company like Amazon having a unionization drive in a warehouse in Bessemer and it becoming not only a national but an international news story, the fact that so many people in, in the United States were in favor of workers organizing at Amazon, the fact that a president actually made a statement in favor of workers' right to organize. He could have done a lot more, but he still <laughs> made you know that statement. Yeah. And other politicians have as well. The fact that um, – you know, ABC actually did really good segments on the John Deere strike. Like, that would have been unthinkable for most of my life. Yeah. That was what struck me about the Republicans. Um, at the national level, I mean, we haven't had pro-labor Republicans in our lifetime. No. But at the local level, that is a thing. I mean, when I lived in Kentucky, there were still Republicans who voted in favor, you know, in pro-labor ways, at least in certain circumstances. And what struck me is that um, so that departure from, you know, even just rhetorical departure to me was significant. But the other thing that I was thinking about is the labor movement would be a lot stronger 
if it had bipartisan support, because the knock oftentimes on unions now is, uh, well, you're just a sort of lockstep support for the Democratic Party. Mm. And it's like, well, yeah, they're the politicians who, <laughs> you know, you even have a prayer mm-hmm. of getting support from and, you know, at the presidential level, not getting a National Labor Relations Board that's just stacked with a bunch of union busting goons. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you had some actual, you know, Republicans who would occasionally support unions, it would actually be really important to the movement, I think. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. Yeah. And I mean, I would... It would essentially require them to actually give a shit about their constituencies, right? I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways it's really that simple, right? Because even when Republicans especially, but not exclusively, right, were busy hammering the labor movement over the course of our lifetimes, right, a lot of it was still pitched as beneficial for workers, right? Um, you could start all the way back from Ronald Reagan as the union buster in chief, breaking the PACCO strike, mm-hmm. you know, of that 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that unleashed a wave of employers in the private sector doing what Kellogg's and, and other employers have threatened to do, which is replace an entire striking workforce, right? And again, the the pitch there was, you know, oh, these unions are self-serving, they only care about themselves and they their retirement packages and so on and so forth. They're hurting you, dear working person, as a consumer, we're the ones looking out for you because this is ultimately what you see when you're balancing your checkbook and everything else, right? Um, these workers at like demanding wages that are higher than you get means that the price of the goods that they produce are going to go up and that's going to hurt you. So in effect, us breaking the back of labor is helping you again as a consumer. Um, same thing goes for right to work, right? It was pitched as, you know, a a, a benefit to working people. Mm. You know, the our, our dear friend, who I think actually introduced us, uh, the great Harvey J.K. Mm. Um, I think you're right. I forgot that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just realized, remember that. But uh, <laughs> shout out to Harvey. Um, but, you know, Harvey made a really great point when I was reporting in Wisconsin. I got to, I got to chat with him for one of the videos that we recorded at The Real News. Um But he made a really great point where he said, you know, workers in this country do not get to vote on their wages. They get to vote on their taxes, right? And that, if you understand Mm. that part of kind of the American mind, it tends to, a lot of other things make a lot more sense when you Mm. view it through that lens. This is how I think something like right to work was able to be successful in a lot of states because, Workers who could not vote on their wages are really only thinking about what is coming out of my paycheck. If it's union dues, like, and Republicans are kind of telling me, hey, we're, we're essentially keeping that, you know, amount of money from leaving your bank account every month. We're looking out for you. Um, in a system where, you know, you are perhaps living so 
close to the bone like so many American workers have been for so long, um, you really only see it in those in those zero-sum terms. You don't think yeah. about what those union dues actually do for you <laughs> and, and like how they actually protect you and allow the union to represent you. Right. Well, and they're also not wrong that there's a risk, too, because mm-hmm. we've seen, look, workers voted to unionize a Dollar General store in Missouri, I think it was, and guess what Dollar General did? Mm-hmm. They closed the store. Mm-hmm. Um, when workers were thinking about unionizing at VW, there were threats that came from politicians of, you know, we're going to not have the new cars made here, and, you know, we're going to either limit production or we're going to shut it down altogether. And those threats... It would be good if they were, you know, if anything was ever done about them when they actually follow through. Mm -hmm. But workers aren't wrong in a place like Bessemer that doesn't have a lot of other decent paying jobs to be afraid of that retaliation because, once again, the deck is so stacked against them. Mm -hmm. So it's not an inaccurate reading of and risk assessment of what their situation is. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, and that's, I think, one of the sobering thoughts that that we should all sit with as we kind of wrap up 2021 and enter 2022. And 2022 will be a very interesting year. There are a lot of contracts up. Um, There are a lot of big labor fights coming up. Mm. Um, And some of them, I think, will be uh, very high stakes, right? I mean, the, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters just finally put the nail in the coffin of the Hoffa era um, and elected new leadership um, ahead of the largest kind of contract negotiation at UPS coming up next year, right? So that's going to be a really big test. And they ran pretty explicitly on, you should explain this because you'll do a better job than me, but the last UPS contract that was negotiated mm-hmm. under the Hoff, during the Hoffa era, um, the rank and file did not like, voted against. They went over their heads at the, the top level adopted this contract anyway. And the new leadership explicitly ran on, we're not doing that again. And if it takes a strike, that's what we're going to do. And they were voted in overwhelmingly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I thought you put it perfectly. It's like, um, it's, I guess, for folks who don't know that much about the kind of internal democratic or anti-democratic dynamics of unions like the Teamsters, um, it was essentially kind of like a superdelegate thing, right? Where, yeah. Truly. Like, that's yeah. a great way of describing it. Yeah, the, where the membership did actually vote that contract down, but they were kind of superseded um, in a way that really violated um, kind of the, the checks that were put in place because of what, you know, people tend to know a, very, a few things about the Teamsters, uh, especially after, what was that movie, The Irishman and stuff like that, right? So we know about the Hoffa era. We know about the ties to the mob and the corruption and stuff like that. Um, and it was because of, like, federal investigations into the union that the union was more or less forced to have more rank-and-file democracy in voting for their union representatives. So the Teamsters do have a system where the membership uh, is able to directly elect their international leadership, um, which is something that, uh, you know, not every union has. And in fact, another really important non-strike related struggle that has happened this year that is part of the overall picture we're talking about from the great resignation to the strikes to, you know, um, a referendum in the United Auto Workers 
that passed um, where mem- the membership said, we want to have what the Teamsters have. We want to mm-hmm. be able to directly elect our international leadership, which is important um, because if you look at something like the John Deere strike, um, which at the time was the largest strike happening in the country, I think it was 10,000 workers at plants in multiple states, they overwhelmingly voted the uh, first contract down. I think it was like over 90%. Mm-hmm. So how do you have that big of a divide between the rank and file and the kind of international leadership that thought that this deal was fine? They yeah, thought, who, t- who recommended a yes vote on Yeah, they were like, hey, here we go. Like, you know, we, sh- we recommend that you guys vote yes. And everyone was like, you know, F that. Yeah, <laughs> right? 90% were like, no, we don't think so. Yeah, so like, you know, there's there's multiple layers here, right? There's both the what you heard from, you know, workers that we were deemed essential. We've been working our butts off. We've been doing, you know, like overtime and – Here's the big thing. We have made this company more profitable than it has ever been. John mm-hmm. Deere recorded its most profitable year in existence, and it's currently slated to outdo that next year, right? And yet, again, it still offered a crappy contract that workers overwhelmingly voted down, but the international leadership recommended a yes vote on. So you have a lot of like kind of divides here between the rank and file, the bosses, and a leadership that needs a shakeup. And so the fact that the UAW did vote for um, rank and file direct election of union leadership is really huge. Again, the the point here being that um, there are a lot of also internal problems with the labor movement that need to be worked out. There's a lot of growth that needs to happen. There's a lot of young rank and file energy that needs to be injected into a labor movement that has been knocked on its back for so long and that has basically just been fine with concessionary bargaining with, um, you know, kind of cozy relationships with management, this sort of belief that labor and management are not at odds with each other, that they actually are on the same side. We've seen time and time again how wrong that is. Um, the UAW is a perfect example of that, right? Mm. You think like we're, we were talking about the two-tier stuff. Um, the two-tier in a lot of ways, started in the auto industry. There are a lot of other industries that have basically had proto versions of two-tier for a long time. But in many ways, this was kind of a change that was forced through, I think it was Chrysler 40 years ago. We saw it crop up uh, in John Deere again um, in the 1997 contract. Um, and John Deere workers are represented by the UAW. But also the, the example that I always give people is General Motors. Right, General Motors. We all know the story about the recession. The American automotive industry was was you know on its deathbed. It got bailed out. Um, part of that deal was that labor, the labor side, was going to take concessions. It was everyone was going to quote unquote tighten their belt. Um, yeah, these tier, yeah. So the, these tiers were really implemented um, as a sort of cost saving, life saving measure for the industry. And again, just like the Warrior Met Coal strikers, the promise was made that once we get through this, once we get back in the black, you know, workers will be repaid for their sacrifices. Um, and this, this, this two-tier, even three-tier, if you consider like temps, you know, who are also on these, these yeah. factory floors. So there are multiple tiers of people on the same shop floors doing a lot of the same work, getting paid radically different amounts. Um, what happened? Uh, the com- GM did get in the black. Uh, Mary Barra, uh, the the CEO, 
repaid them with mass layoffs and mm. plant closures, including— Oh, then Democrats ran for, then ran for governor yeah. of Michigan. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's mind-blowing, including the shuttering of the historic Lordstown plant in Ohio. Um, and it was, it was, again, it was pitched in like, well, this is what we need to do to serve our shareholders. Like, that is what we are ultimately here to do. We yeah. are a profit-generating engine— for, you know, our, our stakeholders, wherever we need to go to ensure that is what we're going to do. We have no commitment to the towns that depend on the jobs that we provide. We have no commitment to the workers who make our product what it is. Our allegiance is only to our shareholders. And I think that, I guess, hooking this back to where we started, what we are seeing is that that sort of system has infiltrated everything that we know and love everything yes. right now there's a there's a lockout in major league baseball it's a perfect like crystallized example of a league that people love that fans love that players love that has essentially been taken over by that profit motive so that all these billionaires can buy up these teams, move them to wherever the hell they want, because their main goal is to take this thing. doesn't matter that it's a sport. They see it as an engine for making a crap ton of money, mm-hmm. um, and the sport suffers for that. Yeah. Right? And, and, and everything in our culture and, and all the consumer products that we you know depend on, the more that that sort of profit – Motive has dominated all aspects of our lives. We're now kind of coming to the realization that, well, this doesn't really translate to a better society, doesn't translate to better products, doesn't translate to better culture, um, but there's really no alternative. Yeah, I mean, the entire national, the only national value that really matters is profit and loss. And you see that, I mean, we've seen it very clearly in the pandemic and our health for-profit healthcare system, mm-hmm. which, you know, they make a lot of money if people are sort of chronically ill and sick. And so we have a lot of chronically ill and sick people. I mean, it's really not that hard to wrap your head around when you realize what everything ultimately is geared towards. Um, I wanted to ask you, Max, you know, how do you think about, um, obviously, the workers, you know, the miners in Alabama you mentioned, the workers at John Deere. They're across the political spectrum. A lot of these folks voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. How do you organize within the multiracial working class, including, of course, the white working class, mm-hmm. and not pander, pander or give in an inch to racism or xenophobia? Excellent question. I think um, this is in many ways, the question that all of us need to kind of work through. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, right? Because um, one of the things that I'm always, that one of the hills that I will die on, right, is that electoral politics in this country, bifurcated in the two-party system and propped up by uh, a competitive mainstream media market with networks searching for ratings and playing to different partisan audiences. That whole apparatus that supports the sort of bipartisan nature of our electoral political system, it it does not ask of us. In fact, it actively um, disincentivizes us and discourages us from finding common solutions to our problems. What it does is it pits people against each other 
Um, and it basically tries to kind of shore up as many people in one camp or the other and convince you that the other side uh, is the enemy, even if those people are your neighbors, even if they are on the same shop floor as mm -hmm. you are. That is the nature of that system. It is to divide us, um, not to solve our actual problems. Um, one of the reasons that I focus so much on the labor movement and on not just kind of organized labor, but, you know, this like my show Working People, like I try to talk to workers about their lives, um, where they come from, how they came to be the people they are. I try to, you're never going to, and in this book as well that I've got coming out, like you're not going to be able to capture just the the kind of beautiful, infinite complexity of every individual human being in one interview, but you can at least start to remind people that the people behind the cash register, the people delivering your packages, they are just as complex and, and they, they have just as much humanity as you do. Mm -hmm. But living in this sort of system, one of the things that this system has to recommend it is it doesn't force us to think about that. We can we are allowed to see one another as only goods and services and transactions, right? You know, we don't have to think about, you know, whether or not the guy who just delivered my package has a sick kid at home, right? You know, or or how much they're making or what whatnot. You know, like that is the way that this sort of political and economic system arranges society and the relationships that we have to one another um, so that we can only focus on ourselves, so that we only have to think about uh, our little sort of uh, hermit kingdoms of, of being. <laughs> um, that's, that's nice, you know, because it's a lot to think about the weight of the world. It's a lot to think about other people. Um, so that's one of the things the system has to recommend it and the ways that our politics in the electoral realm operates as it plays to that. It, it, it only addresses us as people who are really only ever asked to be concerned with ourselves. Um, the reason that I focus so much on workers in the labor movement is because I think that therein lies way more pathways to solving our political problems where electoral politics provides only dead ends, mm -hmm. right? Um, because if you are on a shop floor, whether it be Amazon or John Deere or whether it be, you know, in a university for Pete's sake or in, you know, a lot of white collar jobs have been unionizing over this year as well, especially in like nonprofits and stuff like that. So you can be, you know, in that sort of shared space with people of different, uh, identities of different political makeups, and you have to figure out a way to work together to achieve a common goal. You have to recognize that, in fact, by nature of being workers and not owners, by nature of being in what the great Richard Wolf, when I interviewed him on The Real News, he called it the great order giving class versus the order taking mm. class, right? You know, if you are in that order taking class, you have more in common with the people to your left and to your right than you do to the people uh, who are determining how much you're going to get paid, uh, whether or not you can stay in your apartment, whether or not your tax dollars are going to go to, you know, like this or that war in a country you've never heard of to exact unimaginable pain on people that you've never met before. You are, If you are in that order taking class, right, you need to figure out because your life in a lot of ways depends on it. You need to figure out ways to work together across those things that's, that separate us um, to achieve those sorts of goals. That is a type of exercise 
um, that we are that we don't have in electoral politics. And I think that we have kind of forgotten that there are other ways that we can, in fact, learn to be together and work together and actually build power together if we don't just think of ourselves as red and blue Republican and Democrat. And I think that there's a lot of instructive stuff happening in the labor movement where, you know, we we, we think about um, you know, in ter- if we only think about Democrats and Republicans and electoral politics, so much of the kind of tough things that need to be overcome and struggled over, um, we call them wedge issues. And and the real goal is to like, how do we avoid these things? Mm-hmm. Like basically, how do we put things like abortion off the table? How do we put, I don't know, racial discrimination or discri- gender-based discrimination off the table? How do we focus on quote-unquote kitchen table issues and keep everything else to the side because it's only going to divide us? That's not a way to building kind of collective power. That's just, you know, that's just a way to maybe build a temporary coalition of people willing to pull a lever to vote in this or that person, and then all of that kind of energy is going to dissipate. If you want to build solidarity, if you want to build a kind of grassroots working class coalition where people actually do see each other as, you know, kind of comrades in a struggle for their lives and for a better world, for for Pete's sake. You don't have to use the word comrades, but again, like, you see these people in Alabama and elsewhere, like, they will go to the mat for each other. 100%, they they yeah. they they love each other and they you know they will fight just like brothers and sisters but they will be there for one another. That is not something that we do in electoral politics, but if we look to examples like the labor movement, we can see that it can work and that quote unquote wedge issues are not things to be avoided. They are things for working people to struggle over and come to a kind of collective decision on, come to a resolution on. I say this because like it's not just like – it's not a woke thing for a labor union or a workplace to bargain over things like um, discrimination, to bargain over things like inclusive policies that, that allow every employee you know, to, to kind of be treated as an equal, right? In our electoral realm, we would call that wokeness. We would call that pandering to small segments – of a larger voting coalition that's going to alienate other people who don't see their interests reflected in that. In the labor movement, it is a necessity to come to a a, a resolution on those things because the labor movement will die if it does not make itself more inclusive of people of different races, genders, so on and so forth. Again, union density is at its lowest point. A lot of workers are retiring over the past two years. A lot of, you know, like union workers may be close to retirement. If the labor movement wants to build in a 21st century where we have a more diverse and and young po- and a bigger young population than we've ever had if the labor movement does not figure out a way to bring those people in and do so in a way that allows all members to be treated equally and with respect it will die that's not a woke problem that is a, a a matter of survival but again we don't talk about them in those we don't talk about these things in those terms in the electoral realm well it sort of reminds me of i mean it, it's a racialized two-tier system if, oh, yeah. if, you know if you if you have discrimination within your shop i mean that's essentially what it is so in the same way that you see workers older workers or workers who have been there longer willing to fight for their brother and sister even though they're not explicitly in this moment getting something out of it 
but willing to fight for that second tier. It's it's the same concept. I mean, it's just a different way of divide and conquer Mm -hmm. and keeping people from having solidarity. I mean, some of the most maybe the most diverse place in America is like the shop floor in the union hall, not just in terms of race and background, but in terms of political ideology. I mean, this is one of the only places in America at this point where you've got people who are Bernie bros and people who are Trump supporters and people who were Biden folks, whatever you call them. Are they Biden bros? Anyway, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, Biden people um, all, you know, having to engage with each other and talk to one another and not just completely siloed and feeding a constant stream of, well, here's why you should hate and see as the enemy not the elite political class, but your neighbor, your cousin, your aunt or uncle who supported a different political candidate than you. Yeah. And I think like, you know, it, it behooves all of us in the media, right, to, to stop taking the bait when, you know, other pundits who, you know, do not want that to happen, right, mm-hmm. are give, are the ones giving us advice uh, or the ones who are kind of like throwing wrenches in the gears. I guess I'll, I'll make that a little more tangible, right, is um, this can all seem in theory more difficult than it actually is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like as someone who, who makes a living off of talking to workers about these things, um, it's not that hard, right? I mean, and, and when it is hard, you know, like you come to solutions over it. I think part of why it's made to see, you tell me if you think this is yeah. off base, but I think, and this is part of why I love talking to you is because there are so few people in the media who have any connectivity with the working class at this point in their lives, let alone make a point of routine, regular in their work, highlighting, elevating the voices of working people writing down their words, putting them on their podcast, et cetera. But there's this real caricature that everyone in the white working class is just a horrific human being, horrific, racist, irredeemable, et cetera. And that's just not reality. Mm -hmm. So I think part of why it seems so hard and so impossible in such a fraught conversation is because there's a very caricaturish view of who people actually are and how they think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very easy um, to ventriloquize the working class when you're not actually talking to anyone from make there, them right? whatever you want and whatever's convenient for your poli- political right. project. And I think you know one of the it, it's it's funny because like I don't know when when people bring me on to give interviews and stuff I feel like I have to offer something new and I I try to take every interview very seriously and say you know not repeat the same stuff this mm-hmm. is, I, i'm going to have to get over that with the book tour you know because i'm like all right I can't <laughs> come up with new stuff speech, yeah. <laughs> i can have a stump speech <laughs> um but in a lot of ways i kind of come back to some of the most basic points that i feel guilty about how basic they are but the world at large keeps reminding me how much people still have not learned these basic lessons one of which is can I swear on this? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a big fucking country, right? There are a lot of fucking people in this country, right? So, yeah, you're going to be able to find those, you know, like just deeply entrenched assholes right. on any shop floor. Right. We've all worked with them. <laughs> right. I've, or the, the my favorite example is like the Karen who won't take off her mask. That's like yeah. everybody's favorite viral clip right now <laughs> is like, you know, somebody being an asshole about the pandemic. Yeah. They're there. Of course they're there. <laughs> it, 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 there are millions of people in this 
this country, right? I mean, like, and everyone, I, I hope that one thing that comes across from my work, whether it be working people, the real news or this book, I think I even say so in the introduction of the book is I was like, it, it, I feel really like kind of self-conscious because like when I look at this book, all I can think about are all the people who are not here, mm. right? You know, like, but then I kind of came to this realization. I was like, well, that's not the point of the book. I'm not trying to create a perfectly demographically representative, a representation of an incredibly diverse and massive working class by interviewing like 10 people. That's not going to happen. And we shouldn't be seeing people that way. We shouldn't be taking people in the in all their kind of complex interiority and all the kind of lives that the the complex and rich lives that they've lived, we you cannot take any one person as a sort of synecdoche of the entirety of the working class. That is dishonoring those people. It's dishonoring the working class. It's dishonoring all of us because we are so much more than that. So we should stop sort of looking at these sort of little examples of people that we can pluck from the working class as kind of like, you know, spokespeople like, for. This is the archetype. This is it. Yeah, here, here it is. <laughs> it's Joe the plumber or whatever. You know, working class. This is what he's like. Here's our black working class. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I honestly, a lot of our race discourse is that way as well, where it just totally flattened. Yeah. A yeah. large and extraordinarily diverse group of people into like, here's your interest and what you care about. Yeah. Um, and- I want to talk to you about the book, oh, okay. which I started to to look at. I told you I did a heavy skim of it <laughs> um, because it's, yeah, so it's it's wonderful. I'm really enjoying reading through the interviews that you did. It's called The Work of Living. Um, just tell people about the book, why you decided to write it, because you describe in the the prologue, you, you talk about almost feeling like compelled to put some of these stories down to paper. Yeah. Um, so it's... Um... Yeah, if I recall correctly, I think the opening lines in that prologue are, I, I, I did not know what I wanted this book to be. I just knew that it had to be, right? And these interviews with uh, 10 workers uh, from kind of different parts of the country, all working in different industries, all very different people, right? Um, these were recorded during what, you know, was... I think it still is the height of the pandemic, right? Like when when new cases and deaths were at their highest, basically this time last year. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was very, it was a very scary moment. I think it was the moment where we reached the end of 2020, where it's like, okay, this isn't just going away. Um, and in fact, it's not going to be kind of like an experience that we all got through together and learned from, it's mm. going to kind of be this sort of extended transition to a new reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what that reality will be is still unclear. Um, but one thing is for sure, it was it was sure then and and it's still sure now is that like who is going to kind of have the authority to to – describe that reality for us like who's going to be able to say like what the post-covid world is uh, you know like and and whose voices are going to be included in that discussion Mm. whose voices are going to go on the record of what happened during the covid19 pandemic Mm. in the 21st century like i think again america has has taught us enough to know that it's not going to be working people who are the ones who are actually keeping society afloat and who are living through this on a day-to-day basis. You know, they're not just kind of writing things out in their Cape Cod, you know, second homes or anything like that. So I knew that 
Um, I also knew that like as the pandemic, the reality of the pandemic kind of settled into something that was just a fact of life, Mm -hmm. that we were going to quickly lose that sense of shock that mm, sense the sharpness uh, of it the sharpness of it we were going to lose we were going to uh, we're going to do what what human beings always do which is kind of like uh, acclimate ourselves to this reality yeah. and forget who forget who we were when we were there saying we can do better than this right mm. we deserve better than this um at some point you just kind of accept that this is what it is so case in point in the first few months of the pandemic, there were really beautiful moments where, you know, people were on their uh, balconies banging pots and pans for frontline healthcare workers. Yeah, there were people, right. you know, like very vocally supporting, um, you know, the quote unquote hero pay for, for, you know, quote unquote essential workers because of the sacrifices they were making. We didn't call that hazard pay because if we did, um, employers like Amazon would have been forced to kind of commit to paying it as long as the pandemic was around. Um, they called it hero pay because that what basically made it possible for companies like Amazon to be the ones to decide when to cut point. that off. That's a great point. Um, and they did. They did cut it off, right? And so like that period, we got swept away and the sense of outrage that we had over that hero pay getting taken away, again, it kind of melted into this general acceptance uh, and we started to even lose sight of the huge injustice that was being done um, to these workers who deserved that pay uh, and more than that, and who deserved way more PPE and protective measures than they were getting. Again, it was just clear that the longer this thing went on, the more that we were going to acclimate ourselves to even the most horrific new realities that that um, we take for granted now to plus years into this this or two years into this nightmare. So I knew that I wanted to and had to in a way kind of document, you know, like, you know, what people were going through, um, how they were experiencing the pandemic, what what was happening to them at work, but also in their homes, how I ask every person, I think, a version of the same question, which is like, talk me through what it was like for you when this became real. Right. You know, where were you when you realized, oh, shit, this thing's coming for us, when things started to change, what was going through your mind? And, it, and again, I think the, the lessons from every episode of Working People to every interview in this book, right, is that, um, you know, no, no two people have ever lived the same life, right? And all of us, by virtue of being ourselves, are unique, and there's something very special about that. At the same time, there are so many things that bind us together that... Um, that do make us feel closer together. Um, and I try to kind of walk that line of teasing those two things out. And I think that um, this is to, to hook this back into the, the previous question, just one kind of final note to folks out there, right? Is I do also say that um, I'm, I'm by no means the only one doing this kind of work, right? I, I, I think that there are a lot of great folks out there who have been on the labor beat even before it was cool. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who have been lifting up the voices of workers even before, you know, there was a market for it because they felt it was important. And I would not be doing the work that I do if it wasn't 
for them. Um, but I think that we need more people doing that. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know, the working class whisperer. I don't think there is such a thing. I think that all of us have a lot of work to do um, to remind ourselves and our fellow workers that our lives and our stories matter. And so I hope that what people find missing in the book or in the podcast, they take it upon themselves to bring that into the world, right? And and to do that collective work of finding each other again, of listening to each other, of honoring each other's humanity in when we live in a world that that disincentivizes us from doing that. Because I again I think therein lies the path to our salvation, the path to us getting out of this sort of hell and building the kind of closeness with one another, a sense of solidarity with one another. Um, that we're going to need in order to have the sort of strength for a grassroots movement that can tackle climate change, that can tackle inequality, and that can, again, overcome the things that divide us right now and that we're told are insurmountable, a case in point, right? Again, the, the going back to what we were saying about how the, the, the pundit class loves and, and not just the pundit class. I mean, you know, the online left and everyone else, like everyone has kind of a version of this where, you know, we get so mired in that will to divide people and to segment people into different camps, right? And to say that, you know, John Deere workers are more authentically working class than graduate student workers at Columbia University mm. who are still on strike as of right now, mm. right? And thus, you know, white collar workers of any shape are different and, and the, you know, the, the, we shouldn't be putting our eggs in that basket. We should be focusing on that humble white working class worker as if there's only one type of person there, right? Mm -hmm. Again, you can obliterate that in a second if you just actually talk to people. And the case in point is that, you know, uh, just recently, working people in collaboration with Morning Riot Podcast and the great Mel Buer, we put on a six-hour live stream fundraiser for striking Kellogg's workers and their families, right? And you were gracious enough to send in a video of support, which we shared. We can blame rural lack of rural broadband access lack for of not being able to join you live, which I would have loved to do. But it was, I mean, again, your support and 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 what you and and um, you know uh, Bree and Marianne and and uh, um, just. People who are coming together and actually using media for oh Kate, Katie, sorry Katie Halper, of course, like the the fact that y'all are using media to do more than just voyeuristically report on stuff, but to actually participate in bringing people together so that Steven Donziger gets out of you know federal prison so that we can do something about Julian Assange so that we can actually provide financial support for striking workers who are holding the line um, because they want to fight against this, this horrible system that we all have a stake in fighting. That is a necessary evolution that we all have to have. It's also a way for us to, again, show that those sort of supposed divisions that are insurmountable are in fact surmountable because on that live stream, as just one example, um, you know, all I had been hearing for weeks was like the Columbia strike is not like the Kellogg strike. Mm. One is manufacturing, one is like, you know, these these, you know, salt of the earth. Salt yeah. of the earth, blue collar <laughs> workers. One is, you know, privileged graduate students, you know, you know, they they're just not part of the working class. They're they're part of the professional managerial class, even though they can't afford to live in New York City, yada, yada, yada. Here we go. I got 
Caroline Smith, one of the graduate student workers at Columbia, on the same call with Dan Osborne and other striking workers who were literally standing on the picket line in Omaha in the freezing cold on a Friday night. They were talking to each other and they were saying, we're with you. We support you. We're fighting a lot of the same things because... Kellogg's is telling us to take more cuts at the same time that it has raked in record profits and is seeing record demand. Columbia is telling students and graduate student workers that they cannot uh, get a living wage to live in New York City at the same time that Columbia is touting the fact that it saw the biggest increase in its endowment in any single year. Um, Kellogg's is threatening to replace 1,400 striking workers for voting down um, this, this latest contract. Columbia, the president of the university just threatened to replace all of these striking workers. Two-tier, again, is something that the Columbia workers are fighting for because they say one of the sticking points for them is we want everyone in our bargaining unit to be represented. We are also fighting in a system where adjuncts, lecturers, graduate students are part of this multi-tier system where people are getting paid radically different amounts for teaching and grading and so on and so forth. Kellogg's is going to the bat is going to the mat for to fight against the two-tier thing. They're, it's not that hard, right? And so like they they saw it, they talked about it, they were showing support for one another. You just have to kind of do that work. You have to see people as people, not as pawns and representatives of this or that ideology. Mm-hmm. You, you Again, you put people in conversation. It's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows, but you have to sit down and see the other person to come to – to first realize that we are closer together than we are farther apart and that – our lives depend on us figuring out a way to overcome these sorts of differences. And if we can use yeah. media to do that in any way possible, then I think we will be taking a massive step where we can actually be part of those movements for change that we desperately need to see in the world. It can feel a little impotent, you know, like, all right, here you have this with, with Assange. Here you have the U.S. federal government and a lot of other you know, powerful entities that Julian Assange has exposed their secrets and they are set out to destroy him. And like, here we are doing this little live stream. But I have to tell you, like, people really were heartened by seeing, especially post-Bernie, the left's a mess. Everybody's fighting with each other, hates each other. This one done like that one. And mm-hmm. this one said that and the other one didn't, whatever. You guys know all the various dramas that are out there. To actually see you know what? We're going to do something together. We're going to try to push. Here's an effort we all agree on. We're going to try to push it forward. And, you know, with with Don Segura, listen, we were not really the reason why you got let out of prison the next day. But I will say he talked to us. Um, I interviewed him uh, with Kyle and he told us your letters and your support did matter. It did make a difference in me being put to home release. It's a long way from freedom, but it's a damn sight better than federal prison because the Bureau of Prisons was aware of the support. And it, they sort of were like, what's going on here? They looked into the story. Those The letters that people sent to him in prison, where he's coming away with you know 30 letters every single day, it made everybody say, what's going on here? And he also said that you know, those letters of support not only lifted his spirits while he was in prison, but everybody around him was uplifted by the fact that they weren't just invisible anymore. He was in somewhere where people actually cared about what was happening in this prison. So, um, you know, these small things hopefully add up to something larger. In my view, what you're doing is maybe the most radical act 
of all and what you put at the center of your work, which is asking all of us to consider everybody's humanity. And to what you were saying earlier about how we were all collapsed down to consumers, I mean, that's the opposite, right? Where you are told that you don't need to worry about these other people. Just worry about yourself. It's all you need to worry about. They're on their own. They're, if they're struggling, that's, that's their fault. You don't have to consider them. You don't have to consider their humanity. And um, when I was on the ground uh, during the West Virginia teacher strike, one of their chants was, we are worthy. And to me, that was, again, one of the most sort of profound and radical statements and so different <laughs> from the way that this country is run and the way that, you know, elite institutions in this country operate. So just thank you for doing that work. Um, and I think it I think it takes courage and I think it's profoundly important. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you, seriously, for the work that you do. It does does matter, right? I mean, you know, I think you're right that it, it forces us to be humble about our own position, but I think that's a good thing because it then forces us to see ourselves as part of that collective effort. No one live stream is going to change the world, but you do have these sort of ripple effects that can matter so much in the darkest of times just to, and I'm talking a whole lot, but just to, I guess, end on this kind of final anecdote, right, is I remember when the Frito-Lay strike was was happening in July. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke to a worker, Sherry Renfro, there uh, for working people. And, I mean, it was, a, it was a really, I think, important interview. You know, we talked a lot about what she and her coworkers were going through, and it was in those human terms, right? She was talking about the fact that all the forced overtime was leading her to miss the few remaining dinners and birthdays that she had left with her parents before they were gone from this earth for good. And she mm. cried, you know, while she was talking about that. Another, the hardest episode I've ever recorded was this year with the family of Evan Seyfried, a Kroger worker in Ohio who was bullied by management into suicide. This is their first Jesus. This is their first Christmas without their brother and their son. That loss is impossible to, you know, sum up for, you know, for them, but they were brave enough to kind of give their son the 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 kind of and his story the treatment that they that they believed he deserved and I I really thank them for that. The reason I bring that up is that is you as a listener, you as a, as someone on the sidelines who's been told your whole life, just focus on yourself. That's the best you can do in an unequal world is just try to get your peace, uh, look out for number one, and you know that's that's the best that we can hope for. But more and more people, even just starting to change that part of their brain and to see themselves as more of a stakeholder in a world that could be that cruel, that could that could cause that much pain to people who look like you and me, to people who might, who could as well be our family members, right? You know, who, who, who have lost more than, than we could ever imagine, but, but we feel that loss on that human level. And that makes us a little more willing to donate to a strike fund, to show up to a picket line, to vocalize support online. And it does actually matter, not at like any one person or any one tweet is going to do it, but it's Again, it forces us to be part of a collective. And Sherry Renfro at Frito-Lay told me that. She was like, when we were thinking of going on strike, management said, 
you're going to be alone out there. Mm. This, this, the, the people in this town are not going to support you. The people in this country are not going to support you. So if you walk out that door, you know, you are basically signing your own death warrant, right? And you're going to be completely alone. And she said, when we saw people tweeting out, you know, support, when we saw people coming to the picket line and wow. bring us coffee and donuts, it gave us, it made us realize that they were lying. And then, in fact, we were supported, and that gave us the strength to stay out there and hold the line. So it does matter, and we have to kind of keep that in our focus because we can all play a small part. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Thank you for that. Um, tell people where they can follow your great work. Um, so you can you can find me uh, in my work at the Real News Network. Um, my show, Working People, is partnered with the Real News and the great uh, In These Times magazine. You can listen to it on any sort of of your favorite podcast players. If you want to become a patron, you can get all the bonus episodes there. Um, please, if you uh, want to see more of the work that we do at, at the Real News, um, which I think is very incredible and, and important, um, please become a monthly sustainer. You can head over to therealnews.com forward slash support. Become a sustainer of our work so we can keep bringing you the kind of coverage that we've talked about today. Um, please support everything that Crystal's doing because yeah. she is phenomenal. <laughs> and, and I thank Max you for having me on. Let me just one final plug for Max and also for me and Kyle because, you know, we love for you to support us here at Crystal Kyle and Friends as well. Um, independent media gets <laughs> you don't so, say. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, this audience knows this, but whether it's through algorithms that suppress your content from being shown, I mean, on YouTube, it is not even close to a level playing field. Part of why Sagar and I were able to break through is because we were under the Hill corporate umbrella mm. and we sort of like snuck through a little bit and were able to build something. It's so hard on these gigantic tech platforms, which is why, you know, at Breaking Points, we leaned into paid subscriber models so we don't have to worry about what the tech oligarchs are doing and why it's so important for you guys to support the real news and become a monthly sustainer because you can't rely on these tech platforms whatsoever. Um, so with all that being said, thank you again, Max. Uh, you're a Christmas person? Yes. I am. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you guys. Happy holidays if that's not your thing. Just hope you guys have some time to enjoy your friends, your family, whatever it is you love right now. Um, Kyle is going to be back. We actually already recorded a fantastic episode with Chris Hedges that is going to drop next week. So you have that to look forward to, and we will see you soon. Bye.